risen. He is risen. Ah, you got it. Probably they had to whisper it. You know, this is pretty interesting news. They weren't going to stop telling it, but their leader had just been killed as a capital criminal. You didn't know if you wanted to associate with him or not until the news came out that people said, I saw him. He's alive. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And the whole world was changed. We're here today as Christians because of the most important event that's ever happened on the face of planet Earth, never to be duplicated. And it's inarguably the greatest day in history. There's nothing that begins to even compare to it. If, in fact, somebody who really walked on this earth, who had bodies like we do, who breathed the same air, walked on this earth, this dirt, who was put into a grave, killed dead as a doornail, and then walked out of a grave, and then flew up into heaven, as people watched him, they touched him, they ate with him, something's changed. The whole world has changed. Because now there's real evidence that there's life beyond this life. And we're going to see some of that today. He is risen indeed. I welcome you to this day of Easter. This is the day, as I said, that, that changed everything. And uh, I'm going to begin this morning by simply introducing myself, because my name is Thomas. My parents gave me that name the day I was born, and it just so happens that my name, Thomas, is the ninth most famous name in the United States in the last 100 years, according to Social Security uh, uh, records. So uh, it's a very, very popular name. There's my name, Thomas. However, most people know Thomas, the one in the Bible, not me, more by his nickname. And his nickname was Doubting Thomas. That's how we know him. Now, Thomas is not only my name. I bear the same name as this man in the Bible. But I also bear some of the characteristics of this man in the Bible. And he is the person I'm going to tell, talk about today. He is one of the most important characters in all of the Bible, especially when we consider the subject of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he is going to teach us today is about how important doubting is. And so this is entitled today, The Benefit of the Doubt. You know what that's like. You um, go into your teacher, and you haven't turned in your homework on time, and you say, of course, the dog ate your homework, and they say to you, fat chance, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, you're driving down the car, your car, you're going over the speed limit, and the police pulls you over, and you say, well, but, but, uh, but officer, um, uh, I was late to church. <laughs> I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You've heard those, um, those words before. Pretty significant words. We love to hear them, especially when we're playing on the edge. Well, today, Thomas is going to teach us the benefit of the doubt. So today, Doubting Thomas is not going to be a caricature. He's not going to be somebody that we ridicule. He's going to be our great hero. And I would think for most people in our world today, Thomas is probably one of the greatest heroes we'll ever meet with regard to the resurrection. Now, Jesus, Jesus, on this particular day, did a lot some 2,000 years ago. He made many appearances. The first appearance he made on this day was to Mary Magdalene, um, one, a, a woman who had helped care for his needs, who Jesus had transformed this woman's life. Then he appeared later that morning to another group of women, 
which is interesting because the first witnesses of the resurrections, the first responders, if you will, were women, a group of them. Then the Bible says he appeared to Peter and he needed to have a pretty good talk with Peter. And I can't imagine how thrilling that was for Peter to have Jesus himself appear to Peter and say, Peter, I know what you did. I know what you told me you were going to do. I forgive you and I'm alive. So then he went and saw Peter. And after Peter, the Bible says that there were two men on the road to Emmaus. These are two of the followers of Jesus who were walking away from Jerusalem. And Jesus met them and talked to them. They didn't even recognize him. And that was another appearance. This is also on that same Sunday. Then later that day, the Bible tells us Jesus met with 10 of the disciples who were in an upper room locked away. Because remember, they were scared. Their leader, and they were known to be his followers, had just been executed for a capital crime. He was executed because people thought he was, going to, he was a terrorist and he was going to overthrow the government. So they were in mortal danger. They were in a locked room and through the walls, through the windows, I don't know how he got in there, Jesus came into the room and he met with them. His fifth appearance. Now today we're going to look at his sixth appearance. The Bible records something like 14 different people, individuals, or groups to whom Jesus appeared in the flesh. They touched him, they ate with him, they spoke with him. About 14 of these are listed in the Bible. But the one we're going to look at today is the sixth one. This took place not on Easter Sunday, but it took place the following week, eight days later. And it's on this day that we're going to learn a few lessons from Doubting Thomas. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about, we're going to have to go back into, is to find out a little bit about this man, Thomas. Thomas is mentioned 11 times in the New Testament, but almost all of those are just in lists of names. These are the 12 apostles, and Thomas is one of them. But we have three times that he speaks out before the event that we're going to speak about today, he speaks three times, and those three times that he speaks are extremely telling. This is the first one. It's within the last couple of weeks of Jesus' life. Jesus is down in the valley in the present-day country of Jordan, hiding out because the word had already been circulated in Jerusalem that the authorities want Jesus arrested and killed. A messenger came to Jesus down in the country of Jordan and said, your friend Lazarus has died. Jesus, as you know from the Bible, waited a couple of days, and then he said to his followers, he said, followers, we need to go up there and comfort the family, namely Mary and Martha. That's where Jesus stayed when he was in Jerusalem. And the people said, well, I thought you told us that Lazarus was just sleeping. And Jesus said, disciples, I was using a euphemism. He's dead. And this is what Jesus said. He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes I am glad that I was not there when he died, so that you may believe. Let's go. Now, we find out from the, the, from the Gospels that at this point, the other disciples piped up, and they said, Jesus, let's not go. You know, it's obvious. Your picture is on the wanted pro, uh, posters in the post office. They want you dead. You know that, Jesus. It has been crystal clear to everyone in Jerusalem that as soon as you show up, they're going to arrest you and they want to kill you. Let's not go. And here's Thomas's first words for us. Then Thomas called Didymus. Didymus is 
the word in Greek that means twin. Thomas is the word in Hebrew that means twin. So Thomas was probably a twin. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas was to the disciples as Eeyore is to Winnie the Pooh and friends. I mean, this is Eeyore. All the other guys say, let's not go, let's not go, it's scary up there. Thomas says, let's go so we can die. But he's right. Because that's exactly what's going to happen. And they're going to go, and Jesus is going to die. You see, Thomas... For all of his pessimism, he's also a realist. He is not one of these Pollyanna-type people who says, oh, let's go and have fun following Jesus. He says, no, this following Jesus stuff is a, a bit of a challenge. He said, let's go. Now, when someone says something like that, there are a couple things that come out. One, he's a bit of a half-the-cup, half-empty person, but he's also courageous, and he's massively loyal. Thomas was a realist. Now, the second time he pipes up is now within 24 hours of Jesus' death. Jesus is in the upper room having his final Passover meal with his disciples. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, and they're heavy-hearted, they're scared to death because Jesus said he's going to leave them. He's going to die. He's going to be killed. And they're very, very sad. And Jesus says, don't be sad. Don't be sad. Because... I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come back to get you someday. Don't be sad. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to help you. You should be happy that I'm going, because you know where I'm going. Now, I'll bet every one of us here in this room has been in this situation. You're, somebody makes a statement, and you do not have a clue what they're talking about. And you go, hmm. And because you're not courageous enough to speak up and say, um, sorry, stop right there. You assume that I know what you're talking about, but I don't have a clue what you're talking about. We don't do that. We just go along, oh, nice, nice. Thomas would not do that. Here's his second one. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? You see, Thomas was not only a realist, Thomas is also the one who is the honest soul who will ask the questions that you have that you're afraid to ask. He is not going to sit in a, in a group saying, oh, I know all you people understand this. And he goes, yeah, and he doesn't have a clue what's going on. He's the way Jesus. Now, these other guys might know what's going on. I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. And then Jesus answers Thomas with some of the most, the greatest words ever. Jesus said, Thomas, I'm the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wow. That's amazing. So Thomas is, first of all, he's the realist. He's the one who, who sees the situation accurately, no matter how dark it is, and he'll tell the truth because he's courageous and he's loyal. And he's also the one who will... He'll, 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 he'll say, if he doesn't understand something, he'll tell you. He'll pipe up. He'll speak up. But the most important one about Thomas is what happened a week after Easter. 
And remember, Jesus had appeared to the 10 disciples on Easter Sunday evening. And they were there, and they were just stunned with the gathering with Jesus. And Jesus, I'm alive. Come, come. You got something for me to eat here? Let's eat. And, and he's a real person. But he came through the walls, and unlike a real person, he's in a resurrection body. He's like us, but different. But Thomas wasn't there. Why not? We don't know why not. But I can guess. If you've just failed really, really miserably, you said to Jesus, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. I'm a really good, strong, courageous person. And you blew it. When they arrested Jesus, you ran like a chicken with your head cut off. Now, some people can get over that quickly, but there's some people who cannot. Because they're honest. Because they're realists. And so Thomas, I suppose, was sulking and nursing his wounds by himself somewhere. He said, okay, yeah, you guys are going to gather for a nice meal, but I'm not coming. I know what I did. So he doesn't show up. Well, then this is what happens. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now, what are you going to do if you're Thomas? Well, let's see what he does. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. That's actually a double negative there. I will not, I will not believe it. That's what it says in Greek. I won't believe it. You people are Pollyannas. You people are easy believers. You people are naive souls. I am not. I am an empiricist. I have to have evidence to believe. Woo. What would you do with that? There was a... Alfred Lord Tennyson was the poet laureate of England during the Victorian age. The, one of the British considered maybe the greatest poet that has ever lived. This is what he wrote. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. You see, there's something about an honest doubter that is very, very precious to God. And we don't talk about it enough in churches. Now, there's a world of difference between honest doubt and dishonest doubt. And a sincere skeptic will ask honest questions because they need to know. A dishonest or insincere skeptic will ask questions to reinforce their biases. An honest doubter will take their faults seriously, but a dishonest doubter will take other people's faults seriously, but not their own. Sincere skeptics seek to make sense out of God's often mysterious ways, but dishonest skeptics will try to use God or to try to tear Him down. Honest skeptics will, will, will accept things don't accept things because other people do. But dishonest skeptics don't accept things even if they are true. Dishonest skeptics need evidence to satisfy their minds. Dishonest skeptics have already made up their minds and they seek evidence to back it up. There's a world of difference. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. Thomas was an honest doubter. He was a realist. He was 
a, a, a courageous, honest soul. And he, was in, he wanted empirical evidence to satisfy his mind before he would believe. Now, you might look at that and say, oh, well, where was his faith? Well, Thomas is full of faith, we're going to see. He's one of the most faithful people in the whole Bible. Let me talk to you for a minute about some skeptics that you may not know. I'm going to talk to you for a minute about a moral skeptic. His name was John Newton. His mother died when he was seven years old. He went to work when he was 11 years old. He went out onto a ship, a slave ship, that went to Africa and took human beings away from their homeland, took them to Europe, and sold them as human property. He then became a slave ship captain. He, that was the, the, the task in which he, that was his occupation taking human beings and turning them into property that was bought and sold. The worst occupation you could ever have. Well, he met Jesus, and this moral skeptic became what he called the, the old converted sea captain. And he is the one who gave us the immortal hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. C.S. Lewis was an intellectual skeptic, C.S. Lewis was one of the brightest persons in, in, in England. He was a professor at Oxford University of Renaissance and Medieval Literature. He was tutored by an eminent atheist. He was an atheist himself. He had a very strong interest in the occult. But then as he started to study Christianity with his mind, he best realized that this is true. And he did not want to believe it's true. So when he finally bowed his knee before God, he said, I am the most reluctant convert in all of England. I didn't want to become a Christian, but intellectually I had to because it makes sense. There are others who are occupational skeptics because of their occupation. Journalists who are, who are told to look at the dark side, find the errors. One of them was a man named Frank Morrison who knew that the linchpin of Christianity was the resurrection. If the resurrection was like a block in Jenga that you could pull out, the whole thing would fall down. He knew that, and it's true. And so he decided he was going to attack the resurrection. He started to study it for himself, though an atheist. And he came to realize it was true, and he wrote one of the greatest books on the resurrection called Who Moved the Stone? Lee Strobel is a journalist in our age who has done this. Um, done the same thing, who was an atheist who started to investigate Christianity and realized how true it was. Francis Collins. Francis Collins is one of the greatest scientists in our country. He's, a, he's the, the head of the Human Genome Project that mapped the human genome. He was an atheist as well. But as he started to study Christianity, this atheist scientist, the, one of the greatest minds in our world, came to see that Christianity was true. He's now an evangelical believer. I could go on and on and on. You see, these were people who were doubters. But God got them. Moral doubters, intellectual doubters, occupational doubters, whether scientists or whatever else they may be. Now, there are benefits to honest doubt. It's a reality check on evil. It's Blaise Pascal who said these great words. Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. The devil is the absence of doubt. It's oftentimes when people do some of the most evil things, they do it because they think they're pleasing God, when in fact they're pleasing the devil. There's something about doubt that is a reality check on evil. It's also a counterpoint in an age of credulity. We live in an age now that's called post-scientific age, post-modern age, 
in which science is not what it once was in the minds of people. Now, we live in a society today where mysticism and, and irrationalism and believing in anything is the name of the game. We need some honest doubt because we live in an age in which people believe anything at all. It's also um, a defense against deception. Some of Jesus' last words before he left this world were, beware that people don't deceive you. He knew that. And it's people like Thomas who are willing to ask the hard questions, who are willing to look for the evidence and search for it, are the very ones that God wants most of all. It's an improvement on indifference. God says the part, the part, the thing about human beings that most disturbs God is not being against him, it's being indifferent to him. You don't really care. It's an antidote to that. And maybe best of all, there's a time when it's appropriate for us to seek evidence. And Thomas is the great one. Well now, into Thomas's life is going to come Jesus. And a benefactor is somebody who makes these benefits true. Now if you were Jesus, what would you do with Thomas? Well, say, Thomas, hey, you missed out. It's your fault. You can go stew in your melancholy juices by yourself. You can wallow in your doubts. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus now, the next week after the resurrection, is going to make a personal appearance with Thomas there. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, the first thing we see about Jesus the beneficent is that Jesus showed up. He didn't have to show up. He had already shown himself many times, and he's going to show himself many more times in the next 40 days. He didn't have to show up. But the first thing Jesus did is he, he showed up. And then... As he comes in, if I were Jesus, I'd say, shame on you, Thomas. But that's not what he did. He didn't say shame on you. He said, peace be with you. Wow, didn't expect that one. And then what does he do? He goes right to Thomas. He says, Thomas, you doubter. No, he says, oh, Thomas, you needed evidence? Come on, here we are. Here, put your fingers there. Because the wounds are still fresh. Hey, you see these, Thomas? See, he pulls back his shirt. There's a big, big spear hole. Thomas, yeah. Stop doubting. It's time to believe. Jesus showed up. Jesus then said, not shame on you, but peace with you, Thomas. Then Jesus singled Thomas out, and then Jesus presented clear evidence to Thomas. And then he gently chides him. He says, Thomas, it's time for you to stop doubting and to start believing. Wow. Now, is that what I would have done? I don't know. The truth is, God is going to go to unimaginable lengths to reach out to all of us. Why? Because God loves us. God will humiliate himself in order to honor us. God will suffer himself in order to save us. God will set aside his dignity in order to show us his love. God was willing to come as a baby, live as a servant, die as a criminal to reach us. There are people in this room right now who have shaken your fist at God, and God has met you there. There are people in this room right now, I'm sure of it, who have dabbled in the occult, 
And God has met you there. There are people in this room, all, many of us, all of us, who have messed up morally. And God is willing to meet us there. There are people in this room that have more questions than you can imagine that are not answered. But God is willing to meet you there. There are people in this room who have been immersed in all kinds of false religions. But God is willing to meet you there. And if you think you've done something or been somewhere where God cannot go or will not go, you're wrong. He is not put off by skeptics at all. There's only one kind of person on the face of planet Earth who will not be met by Jesus. And that is the person who doesn't think they need him. It's the only one. It seems to me if you boil down all the sins in the Bible, the greatest heroes of the Bible have committed every evil sin you can imagine. Murder, adultery, cover-ups, dishonesty, you name it. Every single one. But there's only one sin that ultimately matters. And that one sin is self-righteousness. Because basically what you're saying is, I don't need you, God. I think I can stand before you and proclaim that I'm a pretty good person. That won't work. That won't work at all. And so what happened as a result? Well, amazing things are going to happen now. Thomas, of course, is being, going to be given the opportunity to check out the wounds. Maybe he put his finger in them. He's given now his empirical evidence. And then Jesus, who showed up, look what he did. These are the things that our Lord Jesus did. For, for Thomas, he didn't have to do any of them. That's what he did. And he would do the same for each of us. Well, then finally, how does it end? Thomas now is a changed man. Look what happens next. Thomas now says to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Now, that is, our, that is the greatest statement to date that had been ever been made in the entire Bible. That's the greatest one. It's the most theologically powerful and accurate statement probably to date that had ever been made in the Bible was this one. Thomas, when now this honest soul who was a realist but an empiricist who demanded evidence now was shown the evidence by the very one who had died on the cross for his sins, when Thomas finally saw that and his, his mind was satisfied, his heart was filled, he gives the greatest words ever. My my, it's personal. My Lord, you are my Lord, and you are my God. Remember, he's Jewish. Jewish were strict monotheists. This gets a person killed to say this. He said, you are my Lord, and you're my God. Whoa. So his scene finally gives way, not just to this proclamation, but to the worship of Jesus. And what's Jesus going to say to that, Thomas? Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And you know that includes us. We did not have the privilege of being there that day. We did not have the privilege of being among those hundreds and hundreds of people who did see Jesus, who touched Jesus, who ate with Jesus, who heard Jesus for 40 days after he was resurrected. 
on multiple occasions with all kinds of people. We were not among them. We have incredibly accurate eyewitness personal testimonies in the Bible, written by both eyewitnesses, personal friends, as well as Jewish historians, Roman historians, and a historian of the Bible like Luke. He was a historian. He was not an eyewitness. We have all these accounts. Thomas, you saw the evidence with your own eyes. You touched me with your own hand. You heard me with your own ears. You saw my body. You ate with me. But there are others who are going to come who don't have the same opportunity you have. And guess what? They're blessed too. You saw and you believe. They've only heard and they believe. And this is how the Gospel of John, written by Jesus' best friend on earth, ends. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Wow. You see... Have you noticed the key word in this whole account of Thomas? There's one word that appeared six times. It's the word belief. It says the miraculous signs that Jesus did, like the resurrection, are designed to be the ground of our belief. The object of our belief is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us. The centerpiece of our belief is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the goal of our belief is life. Life here and eternal life to come. That's what John's all about. That's what the resurrection is all about. Oh, we live in a society today in which the word faith and belief is thrown around. It basically means to most people that you are stupid and you believe in stuff that no one ought to believe in. And frankly, a lot of religion is stuff you ought not to believe in because there's no basis for it. Belief is only as good as the object of its belief. Our belief is centered on the historical person of Jesus and the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus. That is the basis of our faith. It is not Pollyanna. It is not pie in the sky by and by. It is not some person receiving revelations from heaven. This is something that happened on this planet. And it changes everything. It's the game changer, the great game changer of all. Here's how Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing a few years later, summarizes the centerpiece of Christianity. Brothers, I want to remind you of the good news or gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. I received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's it. That's the centerpiece of Christianity in a nutshell. Jesus died for our sins. That's the problem, is our sin. The solution is the atoning death of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who took our sin on himself, giving us in place his righteousness. He was buried, he was raised again on the third day. That's the substantiation that it's true and it's real and it's empirical evidence. And so, thanks for doubting, Thomas, because you've taught us the benefit of the doubt. It is okay to doubt, but not insincerely doubt. But far more important to God is that that doubt, those doubts, 
the doubts of a realist, the doubts of an honest soul, the doubts of, doubts of an empiricist will lead that person face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, will ponder what he did when he rose again from the dead on Easter Sunday morning, would consider the implications of that for himself. And then he said, my Lord and my God. This morning we're going to end by singing a song, one of the great songs that we sing at Easter time. It's up from the grave he arose. And as the musicians are going back, we're going to end with that and then we'll have a benediction. But I would like to issue an invitation this is the invitation. If you are one of the doubters like Thomas, and I'm one of those, I'm a bit of a skeptic myself. I want evidence. I want to take the honest look at things. I'm a bit of a realist, and I hope you are as well. You may be here today and you have not committed yourself to Jesus. You have not seen who he really is. You've not acknowledged him as the one who died on the cross for your sins. I'm gonna give you an invitation after this song is sung, and after the benediction is offered, there'll be a group of us up here, some, some people in the church who would love the opportunity to talk with you, to pray with you, to introduce you to Jesus, because there could be no greater, uh, no greater benefit from this day than that you would come to know this Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead, opening heaven to you for eternal life. There could be no greater day in all, all of your life than this day. Please come. Please come. If you don't know Jesus, come and talk to us here. We'd love to introduce you to Jesus.